You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast. Interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Rob, welcome to Real Faith Stories. I am really grateful to have you on the program and looking forward to digging into your story today. Glad to be with you, Brian. One of the things that you shared with me, Rob, prior to this conversation was that through the attacks you received in your ministry, you said you became a person with far more spiritual authority and started seeing a tremendous increase in God's power, how there are people wanting power, but there's a process that tends to happen before experiencing that power, isn't there? Yeah, there sure is. I'd love for you to share some of your backstory, and then let's dig into that process and things that happened in your life that brought you to that place. I surrendered my life to Christ at 19. I'd grown up in the church. Church hadn't really made a huge difference in my life, but I had a breakup when I was 19, led me to surrender, experienced an outpouring of Jesus' love, and immediate sense of calling on my life. Like I knew that God was calling me to ministry. I just said to the Lord, I I don't want to make this decision based on an emotional experience, and so I'm not going to tell anybody. If you're in it, confirm it. But I did start moving in faith. I switched my major. I was a computer science major in a secular school, and I switched to a Christian school so I could take Bible classes. And I also switched to an English major so I would be able to at least get more communication skills and so on. And I had about 60 people while I was there just say to me, I feel like there's a call on your life. You know, <laughs> are, are you feeling like there's there's a call on your life? I feel like God is calling you to ministry. By the time I had that confirmation, I worked for a year, went to seminary. When I went to seminary, I was 24. I'm sitting alone with God for a day, and I hear the Lord say to me, I'm calling you to plant a church. You're going to teach in seminary. You're going to write books. You're going to speak internationally. Everything you do is for revival. And I said to the Lord at that stage, Lord, I will do anything you ask me to do, but I'll never open my own doors and seek to advance my own opportunities. You open the doors and I'll walk through them when the time comes. But I didn't want ambition to interfere with the kingdom. I wanted to make sure my heart was not moved by pride in that. So one by one, doors started opening. I planted a church in New England, and one day I had somebody ask me to speak in a seminary class. I said yes. I just knew it was coming. And then when I was in my 30s, I sensed the Lord say to me, it's time to write. And again, I just said to the Lord, if that's you, then confirm it. I had four people contact me within the next month. Not a single one of them knew I ever had a desire to write books. And all four of them wrote to me about, I feel like God is calling you to write. Man. Very specific promises. One of the promises that I got was from a woman who was a New England Congregationalist. We're not talking about people that are on the charismatic Pentecostal spectrum, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, they're pretty conservative folks. Anyhow, she was taking a walk, heard the audible voice of God, and tell Rob to write a book. And then she writes me this apologetic email. I'm so sorry. I know you're busy. You teach at seminary. You're pastoring. And But I feel like God told me out loud, tell Rob to write a book. I write back and I said, thank you. I was looking for confirmation. This is something the Lord's been calling me to for a long time. He opened the door. She said, let me tell you the rest of what God told me. 
And one of the things she specifically tied to the writing was revival and how God would use these books for renewal. And again, she didn't know that was my calling. She didn't know that God had said this to me. Just confirmation, right? Yeah. So I start writing, and I'm probably at this point, late 30s, and I get an, one night, wake-up call from God in the middle of the night, an audible voice from the Lord calls me by name. I sit bolt upright in bed because I think someone's in the house, and then I realize it's God. And he says out loud one sentence, I need to teach you spiritual authority. And I went away to a monastery where I would go sometimes to meet alone with the Lord. And I just said to the Lord, all right, I'm here for three days. You're my only agenda. You said you need to teach me authority. Show me what you need to show me. And for three days, God began to unfold some things about spiritual authority, which I wrote a book called Spiritual Authority and unfold the lessons there. But during that time, the Lord said to me, I I need you to start preaching revival until it comes. I got to tell you, I had a dream during the same frame of time. And the dream I had, I, I am... I am sitting in a sports bar and a woman comes up to me. She wraps her arms around me from behind me on the, I'm on a bar stool. She's in her eighties. She literally like lays her head on my, on my head and she starts prophesying over me of a coming revival and specifically my role that God wanted me to play. And just, you know, not like I'm the key player, just like this is God's assignment for me in this revival that he is initiating and inaugurating, right? And she compares me to these two ancient revivalists. Then in the dream, and all of a sudden she says, pray for him, and I'm in a dungeon and it is pitch black. And there's this huge demonic beast. I can't see him, but I could feel his presence. I could feel the heat radiating off him. He has a giant sword and he's wielding this sword against me. And I have this little itty bitty sword, which by the way, of course, the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6 is literally a dagger. It's a short little sword. And I've got this little itty bitty sword and I'm quoting scripture at him. And it's all scripture that I haven't memorized. Uh, by the way, when I got up, I look it up. It's word for word NIV, which I always laugh and say, that settles the argument right there. I mean, God could have given me anything he wanted, but it was an NIV, God's favorite, <laughs> clearly. So anyhow, I, I finally thrust the sword through this beast. He dies. I go up this set of stairs and these panthers come out to attack me. One by one, I kill them off. And I finally get to the back up into the mall where the sports bar was. And there was a Latina there, a woman who was cleaning, and I knew she was a prophetess. And I just said to her, what is the sign of the coming revival? And she's, this is December 2006. I had this dream three nights in a row. And she says to me, the New Orleans Saints are going to win the Super Bowl. Now, the Saints win in 2010, which was the sign of this coming revival. But I also just find it super funny, and I just think God's got a great sense of humor. He's talking about revival, and the saints win is the sign. I think, (laughs) come on, that's good right there, God. So anyhow, I think a lot of times we interpret the prophetic stuff that God gives us. We interpret our calling in life through the lens, one, of our current experience. Two, we miss the difficult pieces that God's actually forewarned us about. You know, what I thought was, I'm going to start preaching revival. The people of God are going to love it. And there's going to be this outpouring of the spirit on my local church. Why? Because that's the lens of my experience. That's what I was doing. I was a local church pastor. But I start preaching revival and I start getting killed. I mean, I, I got I got people, 
One guy created an imaginary Facebook profile, friends everybody in my church, and starts writing against me almost every day. And the attacks that I started going under went on for five years, relentless attacks. I had six radio shows done against me in Boston. I had people start blogs against me. People in the church started stirring up trouble and divisiveness. And in the middle of this thing, well, at the beginning of it, at the beginning of these attacks, I go to the monastery and I'm literally laying on the floor of the monastery. And I just said to the Lord, why? Not like, why me? Poor me. Just why, Lord? I don't get it. You told me, I think, I think it was you. You told me to preach revival. It's consistent with the words that I've received, consistent with the dream, consistent with the word I had at 24 in the seminary. I'm like consistent with this woman's word that she gave to me about the books too. And yet I'm preaching revival. I'm getting destroyed. I'm getting killed, Lord. And and, and I'm just trying to figure out why. And I hear the Lord. And this is what he said to me. I'm answering your prayer. And I said to Jesus, I don't know what I've been praying, but if you tell me, I promise I'll stop because this is not what I had in mind, right? (laughs) And from the time the Lord told me my calling was revival, because of my study of revival in history and my study of revivals in scripture and my study of the book of Acts, I had prayed this prayer. Lord, give me the ability to impart your spirit like the apostles if my character and intimacy can sustain it. Man. And I had prayed that way because I had seen in history a bunch of these people who were used mightily of God, tremendous outpourings of the Spirit, tremendous power, and then they would blow up their lives with immorality, infidelity, financial impropriety, spiritual abuse. They had lost their way. And I didn't want that to happen. I recognize that when the power line in your life is going up and to the right and the intimacy character line is not increasing at the same level, so it becomes a foundation underneath your feet to sustain your fruit success line. At the moment those lines cross, you are going to blow up your life. And I said to the Lord, then go ahead and answer my prayer. Now, let me tell you, Brian... I was afflicted with self-doubt during those seasons. I mean, I kept saying to the Lord, am I doing the right thing? I mean, I think you told me to preach revival, but this isn't what I expected, right? I'm thinking this is going to this is going to come and it's going to be easy and it's going to be fruitful and and God's going to pour out his spirit, but I'm getting killed. And when you're getting killed, man, and first of all, it's hard. But second of all, obviously, the church is being destabilized. There's people that are leaving. That's creating volunteer issues, financial issues. I mean, it's like not a pretty scene. And I'm like, rather than experiencing an outpouring of the Spirit, we're, we're seeing a destabilization. So I kept saying to Jesus, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And every day, I would hear the Lord say one phrase, put your hand to the plow and do not look back. And I'm telling you, I'd be afflicted with self-doubt again after another set of attacks, and I would lay on the floor before the Lord and say, am I doing the right thing? And I would hear the Lord, put your hand to the plow and do not look back. I mean, you got to be an idiot not to question what you're doing when everybody else around you is attacking you, right? There's just, yeah. you've got you've got to wrestle. And so I'm doing this on a near daily basis, asking God, am I doing the right thing? And one day, about six months into these attacks, pretty severe, a woman comes to my church. She was an occasional visitor, but didn't know her well. She comes up to me after the service. She goes, Pastor, she said, I know you don't know me well, but she said, while you were up there speaking today, I had had a vision of you. 
You were standing behind an old hand plow. You were plowing a New England farm field. It was full of rocks and roots and thorns and thistles. You were tired and weary and sweaty and worn out and grimy. The plow kept falling over, but you would not quit. And it's what the Lord's been saying. Put your hand to the plow and do not look back. And I kept getting hammered. And periodically, I kept saying to the Lord, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And I would hear this phrase every day, put your hand to the plow. Do not look back. About 18 months into this thing, I'm still getting hammered. And I'm doing a conference one day. I wrote a book called Soul Care. And this book has sold a bunch of copies. And I do soul care conferences all over the world. This one was actually doing in my church that I was pastoring. And this Canadian pastor had come to the soul care conference. And uh, he's sitting there in the front row. And after one of the sessions, he comes up to me and he said to me, uh, listen, he said, I know you don't know me. He said, I'm, I'm a pastor in your denomination I'm from Canada. And he introduces himself. And then he just says to me, he goes, listen, while you were standing up there, I had a vision of you. He said, you were standing behind an old hand plow. Come on. You are standing in a field full of rocks and roots and thorns and thistles. You are sweaty and weary and worn out and grimy. The plow is falling over, but you keep getting up. You keep pushing ahead. You will not quit. And then he bursts into tears and he goes, God is so pleased with you. Put your hand to the plow and do not look back. One of the things that if you really study your Bible— and you take Jesus seriously. One of the things you have to realize with Jesus is that before we ever get to experience the resurrection power of Jesus, we have to face the cross. He is the God of the cross. He's not just the God of power. He is the God who suffered humiliations on the cross. Paul, when he was called into the ministry of the apostolic reach to Gentiles, When God called him, he said to the man who he asked to go pray for him, who was a prophet, and because the guy was scared. He's like, oh my gosh, I know this guy. He's been persecuting Christians. And God said to him, no, he's my instrument to reach the Gentiles. And then the second phrase, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Part of the calling to follow Jesus in a broken, suffering world is to suffer with Christ. And in that suffering, I think, is a purging, a deepening of intimacy, a purification of motives. And in it, we become more like Jesus. It's in the facing of the cross well, and indeed in life, you don't get to choose if you suffer. You only get to choose how you suffer. And if you suffer wisely and you suffer redemptively, then when you come out that suffering, you can have the character and intimacy necessary to sustain the promises of God and the calling of God over your life. And that's what happened to me. Three things that are so highlighted to me in your story. One is God's kindness in answering your prayer at the beginning. If this is you, then confirm it. Yeah. And you are dead serious about that. And God was serious about showing you. And he did it through dreams and consistent prophetic words. I can only imagine how that was like a cool drink of water for you every time. Well, I'm sure some of it was difficult because that dream was intense that you shared, but I would assume that was like fuel. I mean, you probably lived off of those, right? Absolutely. So that dream, because of the battle, 
when I was facing all the attacks, I knew because I kept going back to the dream and seeing the attacks in the dream. And I said, Lord, you warned me this was coming. I had no idea it would be this intense. I had no idea it would be this long, but you warned me this was coming. So I really do think I'm on the right track. It strengthened me in my self-doubt and in my just sense of discouragement that was happening because of the church. It kept me going. I wouldn't take my hand off the plow. I had a similar situation, Rob, when I left corporate America to help a friend start a business. My wife and I prayed for four months whether to leave the shelter of a large corporation. And when the Lord said, go, I got a dream. There's only a handful of dreams that I vividly remember. And in this dream, I was being drafted. And you remember back in the day when the draft was active, it was a two-year commitment when your draft number was called. And I was walking into this room with a a line of other men, a woman was handing us fatigues and boots, leaning over. And she leaned over to me and she said, Mr. Robinson, you will no longer eat when you want to eat, drink when you want to drink, or do what you want to do. From now on, you'll do everything we tell you to do. And my dream instantly ended. And when I unpacked it, the Lord showed me, you're entering into a season where you will have two years of absolutely no way you're going to turn back. You are drafted. Mm. And I'll tell you, man, driving 1,000 to 1,500 miles a week, cold calling businesses as part of what I was doing, I had multiple recruiters calling me back into the medical industry from which I came, and I did not. I refused to accept even an interview because of that dream. It, Like you, it kept me anchored, right? Absolutely. Well, you think about Joseph, right? Joseph gets this dream and he's going to become a ruler and then he gets his butt kicked. I mean, he gets sold into slavery, falsely accused, in prison. And yet when the baker and the cupbearer come to him and say to him, we've had dreams, I love his response. He says to them, I can interpret dreams for you. And here's this guy that started his journey with a dream and the dream has not worked out. It's gone south on him. It's blowing up his life, but he is so anchored by the dream. He still believes one day this dream is going to be fulfilled. I don't know how, but I believe it because it came from God. The final thing you said was you can choose how you suffer. Let's dig into that. Give me an example of what that means, please. Yeah, so Romans chapter 8, right? You start at verse 28. Paul makes this incredible promise. Here's the promise. He says, we know that God works for the good of those who is called. And if you go on through the promise, the good he's talking about is very clearly laid out. That is to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. God can use anything that comes into your life to make you more like Jesus. Well, now that's God's stated intention. That is God's purpose for everything that enters your life. Now, please hear me. He didn't say everything that comes into your life is good. He didn't say everything that comes into your life is ordained by God. That's not what he said. What he said was, God is so good that even when evil enters your life, God can touch it with his goodness and make good come out of evil. And there are times where really evil people do evil things to you, but God is so good he can redeem that to make you more like Jesus. James takes the same concept and he adds something to it, right? He says, James chapter 1, whenever you have trials, tribulations, difficulties, etc., rejoice. 
Well, let's be honest. Our, our immediate reaction to difficulties is not, oh, yippee, God, please send me more. So anytime somebody in the Bible makes a statement that is utterly contrary to the way you would naturally live your life, they're going to give you the reason why they say this crazy thing. Do you know what his next word is? Because. He knew you'd ask why, so he lays it out. He says, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance, when it's finished its work in you, makes you mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if you want to be really formed in Christ, you have to suffer. This is necessary business. But James adds something. He's saying the same thing Paul was saying in Romans 8, but then he adds this. And we always quote him out of context, verse 5. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God, right? And we use this for when we're making a decision in life about who we should marry, where we should work, what we should do, etc. right? Just ask God for wisdom. He'll give you wisdom. That's great, but that's not the context. The context is you're in the midst of a trial. You're getting the crap kicked out of you. You have no idea how in the world God could redeem this in your life. Ask him. He'll tell you. He's not trying to trick you. He's trying to cooperate with you. So just go after God and say, Lord, you promised me, Romans 8, James 1, that you would redeem this trial in my life to mature me. If you tell me what you're up to, my answer will be yes. I will cooperate. And that's how I went after this stuff. Listen, I went through a marriage crisis early on in life. We had planted the church. Church is doing well. Jen and I are struggling. We're in the middle of this marriage crisis, and it's brutal. It's so painful. I don't even know if we're going to make it. I'm dying. I'm sitting in the church on Sunday mornings during worship and just weeping some weeks because I'm in such emotional pain, and I'm just praying, Lord, if you give me enough strength, I'll stand up and give this talk. He'd supernaturally give me the strength. I'd give a talk, go home and collapse on a couch and just really struggling to survive. In the middle of this thing, I go to the Lord one day, and I'm like, I'm dying over here. We need your help. And I hear the Lord, and he says, I want you to give me thanks for this marriage crisis. I said to him, Lord, listen, I'm so grateful for a lot of stuff, even in the middle of this season, but this is not on my list. I mean, this is the most painful thing. And I hear the Lord, and this is what he says to me. One day, you will give me more thanks for this than perhaps anything else that comes into your life. But on that day, it will not require faith to give thanks once I've already redeemed it. It only requires faith to give thanks before you can see how I can redeem it. I'm asking you to display faith today. So I started giving God thanks for a marriage crisis that I couldn't see my way out of. Out of that marriage crisis came my book, Soul Care, which has literally changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Now, it's easy to give thanks. Back then, I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And this is often how you suffer wisely. Number one, you really claim the promises of God. He's told you his intention. He wants to redeem this stuff. So you can become more like Jesus. Number two, you have to display actual faith. It's not a passive faith. It's a deep, authentic trust when life is going chaotic on us. And you have to believe God in the darkness. And this is what he said. It's the testing of your faith that develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it's finished this work, will make you mature, complete, lacking nothing. But you have to have your faith tested in order to become strong. So this was part of my journey. I just said to the Lord, I'm going to learn how to suffer really well. And the other piece is entering into the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul says in Philippians 3, right? And I started realizing Jesus is the God of the cross. He understands my suffering. He suffered with me and he suffered for me. And so I made a covenant with God along the way that I would never take offense at God. 
So what happened was sometimes when you're in the middle of suffering, you start to feel hurt. Like, why doesn't God deliver me? Why doesn't God help me? Why doesn't God? And I stopped asking the wrong question. The wrong question is why? God never answers the why question. The right question is how? How can you redeem this? How can you use this to make me more like Jesus? So I literally stopped asking the wrong question. Every time I asked the question why, it was infusing me with doubts and infusing me with indictments against the goodness of God. And I went, I'm not going to ask why anymore. I'm only going to ask how, and I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to believe God for what he said. I'm going to hold on with authentic faith, and I'm never going to take offense at God again. I'm not going to get hurt by God anymore. And really what was happening, when I was getting hurt, Brian, what I was really doing, it was like a little kid, and I'm, I'm speak to the hand when I'm pulling away. Ooh, I'm not talking to you. And, I, and I'm really telling God he needs to prove his goodness to me again. And I just said to the Lord, you don't need to prove your goodness anymore. I'm not making you do that ever again. You've proved your goodness on the cross. You have proved your goodness redeeming crisis in my life over and over. So I'm never going to ask you to prove yourself to me again. You've already done it. And so I'm just going to trust you. And I'm never going to take offense at you again. That made a huge difference in my ability to suffer well. When you had moments of wanting to slip back into being accusatory in your heart, how did you reorient yourself to true north? I started, one, remembering the God of the cross. This is the one who has suffered with me and he suffered for me. I don't understand everything that happens in life, but I know God is good because he suffered on that cross. He suffered with me and for me. He didn't stand aloof in heaven from a throne where he was unafflicted by pain. He became one of us and subjected himself to the suffering that we suffer. And I thought, this is a God who cares. This is a God who is good, and I'm going to believe that. I'm not going to question that. Second, I always recall my history with God. So whenever I go through a crisis, I recall my history. I go back to that time when I'm in the marriage crisis. God says, I want you to give me thanks. And I did, and then I can see how he's redeemed it. This is the God that I know. This is the Jesus that I experienced. This is what he's like. And then I go back to this one where I had the dream, and I'm getting killed, and the Lord says to me, I'm answering your prayer. Listen, I mean, I didn't tell the end, but when I came out the other side and I finally went through this long season of attacks, I, I end up in a dark night of the soul. And I mean, no sense of God's presence, no sense of God's voice for like probably nine months. You know, I kept showing up and, and I would come to the Lord. At, at one point, I felt like this is when I made the covenant with God that I would not take offense anymore because I felt like God was lying to me. I felt like Jeremiah where he says, you, O oh Lord, have deceived me, Jeremiah chapter 20. And that's what it felt like. And I knew God doesn't lie. It's not a biblical question I'm wrestling with. It's an emotional question. You feel hurt by God. And so I'm wrestling with this. One day I read Hebrews chapter 11, right? I'm just trying to bolster my faith and it's the hall of faith. And they all have something in common. Here's the commonality. God gives somebody a promise. They hold on to the promise and God delivers. But hear me for a second. While that's the pattern of the chapter, sometimes God gives somebody a promise like Abraham. Abraham holds on to the promise for 25 years and then God delivers. Hey, that's easy to read when it's in a paragraph in the Bible, but when it's your life and it's your 25 years of blood, sweat, tears, and pain, that ain't easy to live through. And that's when you start to have all this affliction of doubt and all this stuff. 
So anyhow, I'm reading this chapter. You get to verse 32, and he goes on to say, what more can I tell you about? And then he lists a whole bunch of people, Samson, Jephthah, David, and all these people who held on to God's promises and God delivered. He delivered them from the fire and the flame, and he does all kinds of great things. And he, women receive back their dead, raised to life again, and all this. And then he goes on at one point, and he says this phrase, but there were others. And you go, wait a second. I don't want to be in the others. I want to be in the category that they got a promise, they held on, and God delivered. And then he goes on and says, there were others who were tortured. Oh, whoa, 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 let's slow down the train here. I definitely don't want to be in that category. And, and then he says, they refused to relieve their afflictions and because they had this idea of a better country, a better place. And they were willing to suffer because they're eternal citizens. They're not rooted in the temporal, is what he's driving at, right? And he gets to the very end, and he says, all of these, these people who were in the other category that he lists out, he said, they, they believed God for their promise and were commended for their faith, but they did not receive what had been promised. And I read that that day, and I went, you do lie. You gave them a promise like you gave to everybody else. They held on. You even commend them for their faith but they didn't get what they had held on for. And then I read to the end of the chapter. You should always read to the end of the chapter. And the next sentence, so that only together with us would they receive what had been promised. And then I got it. There are days where God gives you a promise that is not intended for you. It is intended for a future people. But he gave it to you because he thought you could be unselfish enough to battle for an eternal family. And that you would battle for a promise that some other person one other day would receive so that that person could live off of your promise to advance the kingdom of God. And I sat there that day because I'm battling for revival. And I sat there that day and I grew up in evangelical. So I'm battling for revival in the evangelical church, really. I mean, there's other brothers and sisters out there and other groups that charismatic. They're seeing much more stuff than evangelicals. And so anyhow, I laid on the floor that day and I said to the Lord, I get it. What you're saying to me in this moment is that you may have given me a promise that you want me to battle for, and it may be for future people. And I want you to know I will battle for revival with my dying breath if I never see it, and I will never take offense at you again. And I will battle for revival with my very last breath for the sake of a future generation. And when I surrendered that day, man, I never had another day of discouragement in my life that lasted 24 hours, not one. And I had been battling discouragement for two years. But I surrendered. The discouragement lifted shortly after coming out of that season of the dark night of the soul. The spirit came back, sort of reappeared to me, represented himself to me. I just was sitting in my living room one day, and, and I just all of a sudden felt God again. It wasn't dramatic. It wasn't like this wild experience. It was just this very, almost like a gentle butterfly just kind of flying in, landing on me. But there he was. But as soon as he reentered, I saw the power of God in my life increase over a thousandfold. It just went crazy. I saw more people healed. I saw more people being filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm talking, I'm preaching to evangelicals. There's no learned behaviors here. Sometimes with charismatic Pentecostals, a holy man prays for you, you're supposed to take a courtesy fall, right? <laughs> and so they fall over, but they don't really experience the power of God sometimes. They're just doing it because it's a learned behavior. It's a cultural norm. They're expected to. But I'm preaching to evangelicals. There's days where I'm giving a talk on the filling of the Spirit, and I got 250 people in the room, and 250 out of 250 people stand up to be prayed for. And by the time I'm done praying for 
for people. 200 out of 250 people are laying on the floor because they've encountered God and they cannot stand. And these are evangelicals. Not one of them has a learned behavior. It is absolutely God moving in power. And I'm seeing this over and over and over where I'm going. And it's just the power of God got cut loose in my life. And through the cross, I developed a new level of spiritual authority. The resurrection power got released. But there is no resurrection power without a cross. Resurrection power can't be sustainably trust to a person who has not experienced the cross in their life. What is the most common question, Rob, that you get asked as you travel around the world? That's a good question. What is the most common question I get asked? Probably one of the most common questions that people are wrestling with. and they it, it, So it's phrased in different ways. But what they're really wrestling is, what's my part? What's God's part? And it's all kinds of issues in life. Like I'm trying to get a breakthrough and I can't get a breakthrough. Why doesn't God help me? Right? That kind of thing. But what they're really asking is, what's God's part? What's my part? And I, I would just say a couple of things in response. So number one, first thing, the biggest problem I see in the church worldwide as I travel around the world is we're making it too much about us and not enough about Jesus. And we're making it too much about us. It's about our needs, our wants, our desires, our feelings, our opinions, our emotions. It's about our gifts, our abilities, our resources, our plans, our dreams. It's about us. And it's not complicated. If we're going to make it about us, we will only ever see what we are capable of accomplishing. If you want to see what only God can do, then you got to make it all about Jesus and not about you. Mm. And we're making it way too much about us. And most of the time when people are wrestling with my part versus God's part, what they're really wrestling with is why isn't God doing more? And, and they're blaming God for not doing enough. I, I've come secondly to this understanding in my life. The only time I'm ever miserable in life is when I'm making it too much about me. So use marriage, right? The only time I'm miserable in marriage is when I'm focused on me. What about me? What about my needs? What about my wants? What about my feelings? What about my desires? And when I make it all about Jen and all about Jesus, I'm never miserable. The only time I'm miserable is when I'm making it too much about me. And so ultimately, all it means to be a sinner is we have a nearly unlimited capacity to make life too much about us. And the more you make life too much about you, the more you are robbing you of the fullness of Christ. Where self has been formed in you, Christ cannot be formed in you until you die to self. And this is what Jesus said. You got to pick up your cross daily. And in that, you will experience true life, Jesus told us. But there is no true, abundant, supernatural life that is sustainable and consistent without a regular death to self. And we got to quit making it all about us and make it about Jesus. How can people find out more about you, your books, your seminars, etc.? Uh, so if you Google my name, my website will come up. But the website is renewalinternational.org. Renewalinternational.org. And my name is Rob Reamer. It's spelled Reimer, but it's Reamer. My family has changed the name long ago, many hundreds of years ago, but it's R-E-I-M-E-R. As we finish here, Rob, I'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please. Come Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, all of us have these times where we're facing things that are just painful and dark. In the midst of it, Lord, it's easy to take offense. It's easy to make it too much about us. It's easy to ask the wrong question. Why, Lord? Why? But I pray today there'd be a shift for all of us in our darkest places. And everybody, everybody here, Lord, has something in their life that they're longing to see happen that hasn't yet happened. My life is super good right now, but the reality is there's still things I want to see that I have not yet seen. And so I pray for all of us that we'd have a shift in those areas. 
We'd make it about you and not about us. We wouldn't fall into the trap of misery where we're making it too much about our wants, our desires, our feelings. But we'd make it about you and the cross. We'd be willing to pick up the cross, have Christ formed in us in really deep, significant ways, go deep with you in intimacy. Lord, your message is about the kingdom. The kingdom isn't complicated. When Jesus shows up, the kingdom comes with power. When we show up, nothing happens. Jesus said that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our lives, Lord, need to be so marked by your presence that when we show up, you show up and the kingdom comes. And the only way for that to happen is to embrace the cross. We serve a God of the cross. And so I pray in Jesus' name, we might be people of the cross so we can be people of the resurrection. We can be marked by your presence so that when we show up in all these areas of our life where we want things to shift and move and things of God to happen, when we show up, you'd show up and the kingdom would come. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Rob, thank you so much. So appreciate your story. Brian, it's great to be with you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.